Shelley Schlender. And I'm Kendra Kruger. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, August 4th, 2015. Coming up, we look at the history of agricultural production and how it impacts greenhouse gases. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. You think it's been hot in Boulder this summer? Silver ants inhabit one of the hottest and driest environments on Earth, the Saharan sands, where most insects shrivel and die moments after contact with the sand. Yet these silver ants routinely forage under extreme temperature conditions in the African desert, where summer daytime temperatures can reach 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Norman Shee and colleagues from Columbia, Brookhaven, Seattle, and Zurich showed that the shape of the hairs that cover the bodies of these ants enables this existence. The ant's conspicuous, silvery appearance is created by a dense array of triangular hairs with two thermoregulatory effects. First, they enhance reflectivity of the ant's body surface in the visible and near-infrared range of the spectrum where solar radiation culminates. Second, the hairs also facilitate the ability of the ants to emit heat in the mid-infrared range. The latter effect enables the ants to efficiently dissipate heat back to the surroundings via black-body radiation under full daylight conditions. Evolution's simple solution to intense heat management in this species could lead to better designs for passive cooling and human-produced objects. Another example of the potential for biomimicry maybe hair transplants to withstand a warmer world. The study was published in the journal Science. Scientists create new Jesus bots that literally walk on water. Okay, maybe that headline is a little over the top. But in fact, a collaboration of scientists at the Weiss Institute for Biologically Inspired Engineering at Harvard and from Seoul National University in Korea have developed a nanobot that isn't walking on water, but jumping on the surface of water. These little bots are inspired by the behavior of water strider insects that are able to glide and bounce on the surface of water. The researchers looked long and hard at how the insects were able to perform these feats. Intuitively, it might be thought that a quick hard push would allow for the bug to take flight from the surface, but in early prototypes, this method would break the surface tension and result in the early nanobugs to plunge to a watery end. Instead, What they discovered through their observations was that the longer the legs stayed in contact with the surface, the better the launch. This way, the water strider also applies a maximum force just below what is needed to break the surface of the water, surface water. The nanobugs have minimal intelligent control using what's called a torque reversal catapult mechanism designed at the motion of a flea, which is able to exert extreme bursts in locomotion without much coordination. These bio-inspired bug bots are buoyant, bouncy, a little brainless, but luckily without any bite. The vast majority of people living in areas prone to wildflowers, wildfires know they face risk, but they tend to underestimate risk compared to wildlife professionals. 
At the same time, they tend to overestimate the importance of specific risk factors beyond their control, such as the composition of vegetation near their property, while giving less heed to those they can mitigate, such as replacing combustible siding with more fire-resistant materials. These are key findings of researchers from the University of Colorado Boulder and their colleagues. Overall, 93% of respondents answered yes when asked, are you concerned about wildfire risk affecting your current residents? But expert and residential opinion differed significantly. While 50% of residents rated their properties as being at moderate risk, professionals rated 65% as being at high risk. Identifying such gaps in perception may be able to help wildfire professionals better communicate risks and design incentives to get homeowners to better protect their properties. The team's findings were published in the journal Risk Analysis and are based on surveys of nearly 300 residents of Log Hill Village in southwestern Colorado's Ure County. When people go to a planetarium, they usually go to see stars in the sky. Well, starting this week, you can see other more earthly kinds of stars at Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus. The Fisk Full Dome International Film Festival will be showing the world's best full dome films for a special two-week engagement from August 6th through August 20th. Full dome refers to any content that is designed to envelope the audience 180 degrees when projected on a dome, most commonly found in planetariums, often in very high definition. These immersive state-of-the-art programs will be broken down into two-hour blocks, each block containing four planetarium shows. Thursday, August 6th, there will be a special guest performance by Miller Puckett, who is a visiting CU professor for the Atlas Institute. Miller is a professor in music at UC San Diego and will give a program mixing live music and real-time graphics. For more information, go to www.fiskfest.com. When it comes to reducing greenhouse gases, every little bit helps, and that includes managing the greenhouse gases produced by how we grow our food. I'm Shelley Schlender for the KGNU Science Show, How on Earth. Raising livestock and growing crops both generate greenhouse gases, and to gauge their impact, a new study takes the long-range view. It analyzes 100 years of agricultural production, and it takes this look at farming close to home. It focuses on the breadbasket of the United States, the Great Plains, which includes eastern Colorado. Here to tell us more are scientists Myron Gutman and Bill Parton. Myron, as the CU history professor who looked at this science professor, but the history buff, let's see what you have to say. First, let's t- tell us why you're interested in this and what your expertise is. So I'm also director of the CU Institute of Behavioral Science, and our interests are in my interest is in the long-term set of issues that are that are um, in by which we change 
uh, economic and agricultural and social practices, and especially in how the development of the population in the U.S. and in the Great Plains itself coexisted with this change in agricultural practice and agricultural technology. Now, why is it that you wanted to look at 100 years of how these changes have happened? Well, we really take this much of our analysis back more than 100 years into the late 19th century, and we're really looking at the whole time period from the point at which farmers arrive in the Great Plains and start to plow up what had been native grasslands and bring them into agriculture. And we follow the trajectory of that agriculture from basically a horse-drawn or oxen-drawn agriculture through the rise of tractors and technology and into the era of modern uh, irrigation and modern farming techniques. Well, Myron Gutman, we'll hear more about what you found out in just a moment. But first, Bill Parton from Colorado State University, can you tell us your expertise and why you're interested in this project? Uh, most of my career, I've been working with uh, development of computer models that predict uh, how crops are going to grow and then what the greenhouse gas emissions are from that. So my, my perspective and my focus has been on the basic research of how you, you uh, grow crops and how we can best represent them in the computer and thus be able to say, well, what's going to happen when we change those practices and how we can best manage our systems? Oh, so you're the data cruncher and the data modeler. Yes. <laughs> and what we were able to do in this project is to take accurate historical data from the U.S. Census of Agriculture collected over the last 150 years and use that to specify how those models were supposed to operate and to verify that what we did was accurate. Now, one question that I had looking at your study is, I didn't know that people were measuring carbon and other greenhouse gases over a century ago. They weren't, of course. But what, our, what Bill's technology allows us to do is to estimate knowing mm -hmm. what crops were planted in what volumes and how much crop production there was, we can estimate the amount of greenhouse gases that were associated with that if we know how they perform their agriculture. Oh, so given what we know today, Bill Parton, you were able mm -hmm. to say if we grew these kinds of crops, this is how much greenhouse gas we would get. That's correct. But actually, we did have observations that started in the 20s. On uh, The USDA had uh, extensive agricultural sites across the Great Plains where they were actually measuring carbon and looking at how we were affecting it back then. They were so, looking at climate back then. Uh, looking, at or looking at carbon and, and uh, not necessarily... Yeah, understanding, they were understanding that the role of, the role of soil carbon in agricultural production. Right. And so they were looking at something that we measure in this, in this research, which is the fact that in the 50 years following the initial plow out, the amount of carbon in the soil steadily decreases until it reaches a minimum. And, and they, they were aware of that and aware of the production consequences of that. Now, you just mentioned something called the plow-out. Right. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But first, let's give a broader context about what we're talking about. When it comes to greenhouse gas emissions in the United States, how much involves agriculture? Total agriculture is just a few percent, five or six percent of all of greenhouse gas production in the United States. What is it that's causing all the greenhouse gases? 
Well, the, the Environmental Protection Agency in its research and analysis suggests that most of it comes from energy production, electricity production, and transportation. So our cars and our, and our homes. And so as we heard this morning on The Morning Magazine, those may be the biggest places to concentrate efforts to solve the greenhouse gas crisis that we're in. But every little bit helps, so why not get agriculture to do a better job? Right. All right. And another part of that is the fact that a lot of the problems with agriculture relate to green to non-greenhouse gases, but nitrate uh, leaching and the Gulf of Mexico, and that a lot of what we're talking about which are good practices, can help substantially to solve other problems. Well, good point, Bill Parton. At some point, a little bit later, we'll talk about what those best practices are for agriculture. But let's keep focusing on the big picture right now. We know that agriculture is not the biggest segment, and we also know that the Great Plains, our backyard from the eastern part of Colorado through what is it about through Nebraska and yeah, really Kansas? Yeah, the boundary, the boundary is really in our part of the world. It starts in eastern Nebraska and goes up to the mountains in, in, in Colorado. And then it also includes Kansas and Nebraska. It and does not From include... the Canadian border and, and further north, if you want to talk about that, down to the Texas panhandle. And it does not include places like Ohio that get plenty of water. It doesn't include the, the big Corn Belt states of Iowa and Illinois, which, are, which have a, a more robust precipitation regime. Okay, so it doesn't include those areas, and it does not include the onions and the almonds that are produced in California and the oranges, at least, no. that used to be produced there. Right. It doesn't include the great agricultural uh, areas in the West Coast at all. Right. Well, well, compared to those East Coast people and those West Coast people, how much greenhouse gas are we having in our Midwest. Well, I, I, we're not really the Midwest, in my view. We're really the Great Plains. Uh, but okay, the, the Great but, Plains. But, but, uh, but I, my, my impre- our impression is that the Great Plains is roughly a third of the agricultural system of the U.S. It's more than that in terms of surface area, and it produces roughly a third of the agricultural greenhouse gases. The, the, so it's even, Stephen, more well, or less, compared yeah. to how much it produces. Right. right. Okay. And the crops that we produce, though, we aren't producing as much corn, but we do in the Great Plains. What are the crops we make here in the Great Plains? Well, the, some of the, the wheat is probably the biggest crop, and it's grown mainly as a dryland crop. Uh, but one of the key things that has sustained agriculture in the Great Plains is the enhanced irrigation. And uh, we have, starting in the 60s, we st- enhanced our irrigation to I think it's something like 15 million acres in the Great Plains, and actually almost half or a substantial fraction of the total production actually comes from this small area which is irrigated. So it's a very important part of our agricultural system. And, of course, irrigated agriculture is important near us in Weld County and near the South Platte River and then in the areas to the east of us over the Ogallala Aquifer. Yes, we have the melting snow in the mountains to thank for a lot of the food that we eat. We do. Plus, we have this thing called the Ogallala Aquifer that is being mined, meaning that that underground water is being used up, and we may not be able to rely on it for good. It's going to be a challenge. Okay, so those are not greenhouse gas issues, but those are issues that are happening with agriculture. Let's get back now, now that we know where agriculture is in the greenhouse gas lineup and where it is in our Great Plains. 
what is this thing that you call the plow out? When did that, what happened before the plow out? When did the plow out happen? And what happened after it? So the, the native uh, um, landscape in this region uh, was mostly grasses. It was home on the range where the was, deer and antelope play. Yeah, although I'm not sure how many deer or antelope were in eastern Colorado. Um, but, uh, but it was a native grassland. Uh, it was short, uh, uh, short grasses in, uh, in the west here and uh, middle-sized grasses further east. And lots of bison, those big hairy things with the big lump on their shoulders, thundered across the Great Plains. What was it, 20 million of them? Uh, however many we can estimate. It's hard to know exactly how many. But there, were, there was a, a native animal population uh, of various species, but the bison were the, were, the, were the large animals on that, the large fauna on that, uh, on that landscape. And then in the middle of the 19th century, of course, there was the famous bison hunting experience that, that actually uh, decimated that population. And as farmers settled the region in the second half of the 19th century, uh, they gradually uh, took that land and uh, plowed it, uh, plow- plowed out the grasses and replaced them with crops. Well, let's look at that moment in time when the buffalo galloped across the plains along with the other grazers, and we had grass, the natural grass, compared to the plow out. Which one had more greenhouse gases Um, emitted? (laughs) Well, that's very hard to estimate. I think the thing to say is that bison and cattle produce roughly the same amount of greenhouse gas uh, Per, per animal over time. And so you have a large herd of, green, of bison, you're going to have the same kind of methane production that you would have from a large herd of cattle grazing on grass. But the net greenhouse gas from, from grasslands is, is not that large compared to agriculture. It's right. substantially less. And it's, it's, not, it's fairly neutral because there's a, another process that a lot of the methane that comes out actually is absorbed and oxidized in the soil. So you actually have a process that takes methane out of the atmosphere and, and gets rid of it. So it balances out a lot of the methane production from oh. cattle. Okay, so, so Bill, pardon, you're saying that when cattle or bison are grazing on grass, their digestive tract produces a lot of gas and but the gas when it's close to the ground like that the ground reabsorbs a lot of it too that's correct i'm trying to avoid in delicate ways to say this but but we all know what we're talking about here um and so that that is kind of a nice clean loop whereas when the area that whole area got plowed up there was a big carb uh I'm, i'm trying to think what kind of gases it was greenhouse gas burp yeah. Well, there's a big release of there's a lot of carbon in a grassland soil below ground. And when you plow that up, it is gradually exposed to the atmosphere and and absorbed in plants and taken away. Those two things happen. And and therefore, that's what reduces the carbon and in the long run exposes it to greenhouse makes it greenhouse gases. And so there was in the plow out, there was this big blurp of carbons and other gases co- going well, it's out. over about 50 years and, but after that then it settled down because Settles. the the carbon was lost already and right. then it was just greenhouse gases from 
what is it, the fossil Fertil- fuels, fertilize- fuels? Fertilizer, initially from fertilizer adding, from uh, livestock production. And then as we begin to put artificial ingredients into the soil, that changes. How about when we use livestock and feedlots as opposed to grazing on pasture? If you look at all of the things that happen when that occurs, is that causing more greenhouse gases or less? I, I think from a greenhouse gas point of view, it's not. But one of the things is that you actually get less methane production from the cattle in the um, feedlot because it depends on their diet, and they have a better diet. But now, other when, things when are you say a, a better excuse me when you say a better diet, you mean in terms of the methane production as opposed to it's pretty well documented that the high corn diet in a feedlot, if cattle were to eat that for months at a time, it would kill them. It's not a natural diet for them that's right it there in theory, I guess you you're doing that for a short time to get weight but not to live on it forever right but there's so there's some trade offs there the corn grown to create the feedlot food creates a lot of greenhouse gases. Correct. Yeah, and that's the definitely uh, cattle ra- cattle are designed to be on the rangeland. That's that's a natural system. And uh, so that's what should be happening in those systems. Yeah. We have 2 minutes. Let's look at two other topics and encourage people to read your paper for good detail. Uh, what about growing meth- uh, ethanol corn, which has led to some more plow out of marginal land that used to be grasslands? Is that helping us be- with the ethanol or is it hurting us with the plowing out of these former grasslands? Well, it's a very complicated story, um, and, and Bill has done more work than I have on this kind of an issue. I think that to the extent that land is being taken and putting put into agriculture, uh, it obviously is changing the mix. But I, the, there actually are ways, and there are studies that show if you use no-till practices, you can actually avoid the net carbon loss problem associated with ethanol transfer. So Yes, Bill, Bill Parton, you believe that the no-till may be one of the best practices out there because there's less water involved, less tearing up of the soil, although it does use more herbicides. Correct, and that's that's one of the consequences that go with that. And uh, there, there's no free lunch when you look at all of uh, what we're doing in agriculture. Yeah. Well, if yeah. there's if there's no free lunch in what we're doing with agriculture, it's worth looking at it to see how we pay the piper. Or in this case, the greenhouse gases. We'd love to hear more from you. What we'll do is encourage you to. Uh, or encourage our listeners to read your research paper. And thanks for joining us today. I'm Shelley Schlender for How on Earth. Our guests have been CU Boulder's Myron Goodman and Colorado State University scientist Bill Parton. We've been talking about their new research paper just published in the journal Ecological... It's in Proceeding of the National Academy of Sciences. Thank you. The Proceedings Mm -hmm. of the National Academy of Sciences. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Michael Brecker. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to us on 
iTunes, and follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Kendra Kruger. And I'm Shelley Schlender.